Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Medea Ocher, Managing Editor of LARB. Hi, Kate. And Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor. Hi, Kate. Hi. So who's on the show today? Today we have Deborah Nelson, who's a professor at the University of Chicago in the English Department, and we are talking to her about her new book, Tough Enough on Diane Arbus, Hannah Arendt, Joan Didion, Mary McCarthy, Susan Sontag, and Simone Weil. Quite a list. Yeah, it's a very impressive list of women. I devoured this book. I absolutely loved it. I read it on both sides of my flight to Ukraine for some other things and absolutely loved hearing the stories about Arendt and her relationship also with Mary McCarthy was really great. And of course, learning about all of the background behind um, Arbus's like more famous portraits, I thought was really interesting. And also obviously the main idea about how their aesthetic of toughness I found incredibly important and resonant for right now. Yeah, I agree. Feels like the Ukraine is also an appropriate place to be reading about <laughs> tough women. I, I suppose so, yeah. It like, <laughs> seems like, a, I think as an ex-Soviet person, I can say that. <laughs> um, Better you than me. Yeah, I said it. And I was very excited to read this book in particular because, well, one of the women, Simone Vey, has really interested me for a very long time. And Deborah's book is really interesting in that it discusses the women's lives and their work, but also their unsentimental approach to politics and literature. Okay, well, let's listen to our interview. So today we're speaking with Deborah Nelson. Deborah Nelson is an associate professor at the University of Chicago, where she teaches in the Department of English and at the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality. A specialist in late 20th century U.S. culture and politics, she is also a founding member of the Post 45 Collective, which publishes an online journal and a book series with Stanford University Press. Her first book, Pursuing Privacy in Cold War America, was published by Columbia University Press, and her most recent book, Tough Enough, was just published by University of Chicago Press. Deborah, thanks so much for being on. Well, thanks for inviting me. I loved your book, and it was a to me, a dream group of women that you wrote about, some of my absolute favorite writers. Maybe you could start by telling us who the writers and the photographer that you wrote about are. And since toughness is the defining feature between them, I'd love for you just to define a little bit what you mean by toughness. I write about six women, Diane Arbus, the photographer, Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher, Joan Didion, the journalist, novelist, screenwriter, memoirist, Mary McCarthy, who actually, with the exception of screenwriting, did all of those things, essayist, Susan Sontag, the cultural critic and artist of many genres, and Simone Weil, who is probably less well-known to most people, who was a French Jew turned Christian mystic, who wrote, and also a radical leftist in the France of the 20s and mostly the 30s, but also a brilliant essayist. And so I write about them and I can talk if you want. At some point, there were other possible characters in this cast, mm. but these people were the, what I thought were the most, both articulate about and insistent on unsentimentality as both an aesthetic approach and as a political value. And at the same time, what I meant by toughness 
is a certain kind of, I suppose we'd call it stoicism, but I think it's a little different than that, but that demands a kind of receptivity to the world and that you have to be more sensitive to the world, but just not as sensitive to other people's emotions as we are generally more comfortable with. And so it's a kind of paradox that it demands a kind of sensitivity and, you know, you could call it an aesthetic education through the senses that you come to know the world and share the world with others. Yeah, I just wanted to expand on that a little bit, because one of the things that I think is particularly resonant for most people that read the book and for anybody that really engages, particularly with Arendt, which I know more about than many. She is the it girl of the moment. So quite a lot <laughs> right, of people are right, 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 right. But one of the things where Arendt may be kind of an outlier here is that she has a fundamentally different relationship, as do all these women, to empathy in the public sphere than what we have now, which led me to kind of wonder, you know, from their perspective, have we gone kind of in the wrong direction in terms of this desire for catharsis, the public airing of grievance that we all are kind of enjoined to empathetically participate in? For Arendt, that's kind of a misstep, yeah? Right. And I would say they thought 50, 60 years ago we were off track. (laughs) You know, so if you take this particular moment, you know, that's been so inflamed by the election of last year and current issues with our president, this, this, the questions of the expression of emotion, the emphasis on empathy, the expression of grievance, you know, these are not new things at all. They have been heightened to a kind of fever pitch. This is the direction that U.S. culture in particular has been going in since the war, since Mm. World War II. So, I mean, it's had moments of more and less drama or more and less conspicuousness in the public sphere, but it's not new. So in the chapter on Hannah Arendt, I'm looking at the Eichmann moment, and Eichmann is a moment where you know, something is suddenly blooming, which is the suffering of the Jews in the Holocaust. Like, this was just not a part of public discourse prior to the Eichmann. And this is not my own theory. This is, you know, many historians have made this point. So she suddenly sees this burst into view, and she is horrified. But she had clearly already been thinking about it because she had just finished at the same time on Revolution, where she writes extensively about the problem of the heart in politics and its necessarily disastrous effects. So, yes, they would absolutely, they would be aghast at this moment for so many reasons. So this might not even make it to the top, but they would certainly have something to say about our expectations of what empathy can do as a politics. Can you explain a little bit what Arendt means when she says that she wants to take the heart out of politics? Yes, I would say it this way. She wants to take the heart out of politics. The heart for her is inside and unverifiable. And its exposure always creates questions about sincerity, authenticity. Are you lying about what's inside that dark place that I can't see? So for her, the world is shareable, only what can be seen and be visible. So in place of the heart, she'd put the world. Like we share the world. It's visible to us. We can touch it and feel it and sense it. And we can share our views of it and our perspectives on it because this thing we have in common can be shared, but our hearts actually can't be shared. So she gets this from Augustine, actually, and I believe she did her dissertation on Augustine. So I think this is, I'm not going to track that because that'd be boring, but, um, (laughs) but I do think she would say here, we have this thing that we share between us and it's the way we understand it and we fit our views of it together that forms a political world. And the heart has nothing to do with it. 
and the heart is essentially a realm of speechlessness. Emotion is not language and therefore can't be political. Deborah, I wanted to ask you, what brought you to the subject of unsentimentality and toughness? I am interested in hearing who the other potential cast of characters were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish I was the kind of person that could say, oh, I'm going to write a book about X because I would probably write more books. Not that the world necessarily needs more books from me, but I tend to back into topics. So part of it was archival. I was working with Elizabeth Hardwick's papers, most of which are not on view. And I just came across an essay, drafts of an essay she wrote on Simone Weil. And I thought how strange that she was interested in Weil. I didn't know Weil particularly well, but I knew her a little bit. And so I sort of got interested in that. And so I started to look at Simone Weil and I realized, oh, Mary McCarthy translated Weil and Sontag's first essay in the New York Review of Books is about Weil. And so I was actually interested in why are they interested in her? So she is in some sense like was a kind of foundation here. And so it wasn't that they were all connected to her or all had such interesting things to say. But then I started realizing, oh, because I think they share her sensibility. That was in some measure. And so I sort of started to branch out from that. But I was also interested in, you know, some years ago, and some of you who are academics or maybe all of you know that Wendy Brown wrote a book called Wounded Attachments. And my colleague here at Chicago, Lauren Berlant, wrote an essay on pain, whose title I can't remember. I apologize. But they were both talking about the fantasy of a pain-free world and the way that a lot of subaltern and social justice movements were organized around this fantasy. If they could just achieve liberal subjecthood, they would be pain-free. And so that always seemed to me like a disastrous idea. And they too thought it was something that needed to be checked and interrogated. And so I was sort of interested in that. And so once you start writing about suffering, you're going to knock into the realm of sentimentality. And so I eventually realized what I was really talking about was unsentimentality, but as a thing, not the absence of a thing, as an actual program, as an actual ethics, as an actual aesthetic practice. And so I was trying to describe what that looked like and what its sort of costs and benefits were. And so some of the other people I was thinking about were, I mean, obviously Elizabeth Hardwick and Janet Malcolm, the essayist for New Yorker and the New York Review of Books. Mm. If you ever read The Journalist and the Murderer, the very first line of that, I wish I could quote it, but unfortunately I can't, so maybe you have to go pick it up, is about being you know, too stupid to recognize that you're in an unsavory job if you're a journalist. But also Patricia Highsmith That's the and I was too, yeah. Elizabeth Bishop mm. and even Pauline Kael, the film critic. Mm. So I spent a lot of time with them and ultimately decided that these people were the most interesting. But I'm not saying these are the only ones. I'm just saying, to me, they're the strong line of a kind of unsentimental tradition in late 20th century American culture. And they're not even all Americans, but I was looking at their work in the U.S. and responses to it in the U.S. So it's really pick up they when she's translated into English and she makes her way into the U.S. And obviously Hannah Arendt was writing everything in the U.S. post by the late 1940s. So yeah, those were the other possible subjects. Something that strikes me with hearing all the other possible subjects and with seeing the list, though I'm such a huge fan of almost everybody on this list and Janet Malcolm very much included, is highly underrated, though secretly maybe Kate is just making a lot of faces <laughs> to express, I think, her fandom oh, of yeah. Janet Malcolm. Oh, major fan, yeah. <laughs> so there's a room full of fans here, at least. 
But something that, you know, I, I can't help but notice, especially when we are talking about subaltern voices and woundedness, is that all of these women are white. Yes, exactly. You finished my sentence for me. Well, I mean, that reminds me that I looked at Ann Petrie as one of them. Ooh. You know, Toni Morrison has a great essay in Writing in the Dark. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. what the Playing question in the dark. is called? Playing, Playing in the Dark, dark sorry. Yeah. Where she talks about, so if you combine Toni Morrison with Ken Warren, my colleague here, who talks about African-American literature being a phenomenon of Jim Crow, the question of suffering is completely different in African-American arts and politics because you have to make you have to actually make something appear to count as suffering mm-hmm. in the political program of civil rights and opposing Jim Crow, right? So that you have to be able to say this is suffering, not that this is too little or too much. Or you're like, who cares about that? The question is, and so a great deal of it is actually coming from a personal perspective to be able to interject some measure of the costs of racism and Jim Crow as part of a literary task or part of an essay or part of a politics. The suffering, it's not like it's invisible, it's perfectly visible, but it doesn't seem to count as suffering. So you have to be able to testify to its mm-hmm. quality as suffering. And so it just, it's a completely different discussion. And therefore, the issues didn't, re- I mean, the closest person is actually James Baldwin, who has a, you know, has a lot to say about sentimentality and unsentimentality, especially the early part of his career. Right when he was mocking or criticizing, let's say anyway, Richard Wright, Native Son, and right. what he thought of as an extension of the American sentimental tradition into black literature. And, but he always wrote about suffering, and he always wrote about his own suffering. So he just, therefore, can't be in the book. Yeah. That's not permitted in this particular strand. So, I mean, I guess what I would say is, this is a particular strand of this discussion. There are just resources in the 20th century that we're overlooking as I feel like we're in some sort of empathy cul-de-sac where we can't seem to get out. We want it to do something that it's just clearly not doing or not doing enough of. And there just are resources from within our own moment where this has been a pressing issue. The arts and politics of suffering have just been with us in an intense way for 60 you know, going on 70 years. And something else about the group of women that you write about, you know, for instance, on your chapter on Joan Didion and talking about feminism and Joan Didion's relationship to feminism, that for her, some of the messiness of the message of feminism was distasteful and that style, that everything really came down, that she was nasty in a lot of ways. So I would also think that with some of these women, perhaps because of a place of privilege, that the actual heat of politics was not as much, was somehow, I'd love for you to address this, that the way the message was crafted could have been more important. You know, I mean, I know that they were also like Mary McCarthy, Hannah Rent were political, but that they had also perhaps a, a remove from politics. I'd love for you to address that. None of these women, no, with the exception of Sontag, align themselves with feminism. And in particular, like, I'm not sure Mary McCarthy would have, Mary McCarthy was not interested in being part of second wave feminism. I'm not so sure she would have objected to first wave feminism and maybe not Aaron too, but nonetheless, they didn't want to be considered. They didn't want to identify as a category. And they also just particularly didn't like identifying through oppression. That just was not something they were going to do. And so, I mean, one of the things that made me interested in these people is like, what, 
since they didn't have a relationship to feminism, but they have some good ideas, how are they useful to feminism now, despite their best efforts to not be useful to feminism? Do they have something to offer us now when we're in a different moment and we can look back, not in the heat of those debates, but in retrospect. And so I did think they had something to offer feminism, despite their reluctance to do so. So, you know, I think Didion is certainly earlier in her career, which would have overlapped with the feminist movement, is a kind of crazed libertarian. She doesn't stay that way through her whole career, but she's very consistently contrarian because she becomes viciously critical of the right wing and the right from the 80s you know, up till now, basically. So it's whoever sort of seems to be dominating the political moment is where she's going. But I think she didn't like, she clearly didn't like the identity, the feminist movement identifying itself as redressing some kind of injury. She could not be a party to that. So it wasn't just the sloppiness of Doris Lessing's novels, or she had a very, very radically privatized sense of morality at that point. And so it just, there were no sort of moments of overlap for her with what feminism was asking at that moment and what she was building as a kind of moral edifice for herself, which was also political. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We're lucky to have Amelia Gray back in the studio. Amelia Gray is the author of a new book called Isadora, a novel that's out from FSG, and she is going to give us a book recommendation. Yes, I would like to recommend Kristen Iskandrian's book, Motherist. It's a really fun coming-of-age book. It feels kind of YA, given but given a broader purpose, so a young woman gets accidentally pregnant and she's kind of narrating the story of this pregnancy through letters she's writing to her absent mother. It's a bittersweet book. It's beautiful. It's hilarious. It's the kind of teenage story that I've always been really curious about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's motherist. So she's writing letters to her own absent mother. That's right. Oh, yes, and right, and and her father is around. She's kind of got the teenage angst towards him. It's she's trying to get through her life and, yeah. and her of, pregnancy, and her pregnancy, mm-hmm. and try to figure out what's next. And it's such a funny book for what it deals with. It's sort of the the kind of flip side of what of the things that I write about in terms of of the big momentous things. But it deals with the same sort of territory. This very big life decisions, life ideas, you know, will she or won't she? What will she do? Uh Yeah, that kind of story. Will she or won't she have the baby? Right. Yeah. Will she or won't she find her mother again? Will she or Uh. won't she like get through? It kind of presents a series of problems, uh, um, but it's done in this very affable, funny, interesting way. And it's all epistolary or? No, no, no. Yeah. Each chapter ends with a kind of epistolary piece, which I think is really nicely structured also. Mm, yeah, Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's the title again? It's called Motherist. And who's the author? And the author is Kristen Iskandrian. Thank you so much for coming back, sharing yeah. that book with us. Oh, thanks for having me. That was Amelia Gray, the author of Isadora, out now from FSG. We have a quick announcement. 
On July 1st, the LA Review of Books will be hosting a guest in Los Angeles. The editor of the Paris Review, Lauren Stein, will be joining us for cocktails at a private home in Silver Lake. And we hope our readers and listeners can make it and join us for literary conversation, drinks, and some fun. To find out more about it, go to our website, thelreviewofbooks.org. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our conversation with Deborah Nelson, author of Tough Enough. Deborah, in terms of their kind of the the moral calibration or the moral question for these artists and writers, there's a distinction that gets drawn in the book throughout several chapters. It's a political distinction between facing the other and facing reality. Can you talk about what that difference is and like how it kind of manifests and what we might see as like a politics on the ground for your for your subjects? Right. Well, um, this goes back to a discussion we were having a little bit earlier um, about Arendt. But the way to form political connection and collaboration is not between you and I coming to be having some sort of congenial feelings between each other, but because we share a project in the world, right? So we have some claim on the world that we want to make, but not that we have claims on each other. So that to me is, so they were none of them very secure in the knowledge that you would actually love your brother once you had to deal with them, <laughs> that this was not something that could ever be forced, right? No, but right. seriously, it's that true. you couldn't... Yeah. Right? You can't make yourself, like, I don't need to love you, and you don't need to love me for us to want the same thing in the world, to see the same thing in the world, and that that's what where our focus should be, not on, not on trying to create better relationships between each other, but shared projects with each other, and that, that would be the kind of politics that they might get behind. And, and there are, I mean, Simone Weil was political her entire life. I mean, she was always, you know, once the war happened, obviously, things go terribly awry, but she was trying to rejoin the French after she had fled Paris. When the Nazis arrived, she wanted to become a nurse at the front lines, which would have not been good for anybody, least of all her. She was not suited to that work. She was very, very fragile herself, Mm. clumsy, but she was desperate to get back to France and be part of the war effort. She was always part of the sort of anarcho-syndicalist movements, not communist movements, but those political working class movements when she was uh, a young person. Well, she was, she died young, but when she was uh, first left college and, and began her work teaching, she worked in a Renault factory to sort of come to understand what it was like to be a laborer in a factory in, in France in the thirties. And she went to Spain. So I mean, like a lot of these people did a lot politically. Um, Hannah Arendt's job politically was to write. I mean, that was right, her. Right. And Mary McCarthy went to Vietnam to write about Vietnam. I mean, she was, they, you know, she was also the wife of someone in the State Department, so it sort of curtailed some of what she could actually do. But I don't think they stopped being political. Sontag was political her whole life. Well, and I'm wondering, too, if, if some of this, like, the focus on what we do share rather than kind of the demand that we, like, love one another or, or experience that kind of, like, love, it is actually a way of pulling together what seems like a very fractured coalitional politics in the present, Right. That if it's like if it's really focused on like a common aim or a purpose rather than, you know, like this kind of a sentimental relationship between one another, then maybe 
maybe that's the solution. <laughs> maybe that's where we need to head, right? Well, I mean, it, you can see some of this, like it's a constant sort of circus of injury right now that no matter what anyone says, they've hurt somebody else because they're busy talking about each other instead about what they want to do. So it's all, you know, to like right. the capacity to be wounded within this framework seems to me heightened. I mean, I don't actually understand all of the dynamics of that. Um, I haven't really thought about it, but it, it does seem that we're, we're all, you know, the, the kind of something that seems to be counting as political work is a report of injury. Yes. And that's not getting us very far. And it's in this framework, right? If you can understand my injury, you will empathize with me. If we can just break out of that framework, there might be other ways to come together. And the book is not offering that solution, by the way. I mean, I'm, this is diagnostic more than it is. Right. It's, it's a study, not, not a prophecy. Well, it reminds me of the, um, you know, something that it made me think about was were the signs that I, I saw and still see a lot of, you know, those sort of omnipresent signs that say love trumps hate that have always struck me as completely meaningless because of the inherent abstraction within the term love. And also, they what do they actually do? What does that mean? It means, as far as I can tell, totally nothing, aside from being like a nice gesture. Uh, love does not trump hate. Um, luckily, Trump I mean, will trump Trump, and we can yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go on with the business. But the, but the idea of loving, it, it is abstract. It's not, it's not aimed at anything. Right. And it also seems to me, and this is my, you know, puritanism, I suppose, you know, it seems to me, or, or unsentimentality, because it seems to me free, right? If I could just, if I were just more loving and we all loved each other, it doesn't right. say that when you want something in the world that other people don't want something other, something else, and then you aren't going to have to debate it and you're going to lose sometimes, you're going to win sometimes. They're like, it's just a, you know, politics is a mess. And it always will be. It's by nature, many, many people trying to achieve something together and they don't all agree about what we are not all as a nation going to agree. Yeah. Even if we love each other to death, what we want for the future. So you have to bargain and compromise and lose and win. And right. loving just means there's no cost to this. We can just love each other and then everything will magically work out. And Well, that's the kind of anesthetic effect of that kind of feeling, right? Yeah. That yeah, it, It's a balm. That's a balm. And I can understand why people reach for something soothing when there's been so much ugliness. In my view, it's only it's a form of self-soothing. And there are other things that you could do and that, that the people are doing. I'm not saying nobody's doing this. That's silly. There's tons of political activity going on now from people who never even thought they'd be in politics. So there are people actively working on projects. But yeah, that's it struck me as exactly that, something to ease the pain of this moment mm. rather than actually something that looked like a real politics. I'm wondering, Deborah, if you think lots of these writers, not only are they so shrewd and cool and, you know, as you say of Mary McCarthy, um, factualists and seem, although they believe in feeling, you know, which I appreciated the the contrast, you you know, that, that I think when we think of people feeling, we only think that that veers towards sentimentality and thinking of feeling as, as separate from that was a was a really interesting idea. But I but I wonder, do you think that the blowback or that the reaction to them, because even comparing them to men, I can't, you know, these are some of the greatest writers, critics of the last century. But do you think that people reacted to them 
differently because they were women and because we're used to thinking of women as nurturers, you know, flowing with sentiment and that their coolness was even more striking because of their gender? Uh, Yes, I do think so. I think that it's hard to find male writers and artists who produce scandal by being, by having the wrong emotions. They can produce scandal. I mean, you know, anybody can produce scandal, but it's hard for me to find people being so scandalously insensitive. Like what male writer has ever been accused of scandalous insensitivity? Maybe some, but it's, yeah, I'm some. trying to think of one. <laughs> Michelle Hulebeck or? Oh, Michelle Wilbeck. Yeah. He's not insensitive as much as he is anti-Muslim, possibly. <laughs> possibly. <laughs> okay. Last time I checked. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. right. Okay. Tone issue. Right, right. Right. So we're talking about, you know, so the scandal of Eichmann is tone. It's all about Mm -hmm. tone. The scandal of when Susan Sontag wrote a little piece in Talk of the Town after 911, there was a couple of phrases that got picked up, but it's mostly a question of tone. She's not being either sympathetic or properly outraged. So there's something like what's wrong with her is like, is an emotional flaw rather than a kind of different way of trying to address an issue and right. clearing out. Of course she had, so she was a New Yorker herself, but she doesn't mention this. She doesn't care about it. She thinks it's completely beside the point. And which is the same thing you mentioned with Hannah Arendt in, um, when she writes, you know, about Eichmann in Jerusalem is that she's a Jew. And, and so how could she possibly? Right. So it's betrayal of, of your people that you, that you especially should express your, your sympathy and solidarity with the, with the wounded. And they're just not going to do that. And they, but it's not just because they're hard hearted that my whole point was, it's not a psychological discussion of these people. It's a kind of maybe more philosophical question. Why wouldn't they do it? What did they see? That, what did they see in play to do that? Or, and what would it take to refuse to do it? And what would be gained by refusing to do it? And that's what I was trying to figure out. Like they obviously didn't blunder into these things. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that in, in no way did Hannah Arendt expect the controversy over Eichmann. She, so she was certainly caught flat-footed in that, but it wasn't that she didn't have an idea about what she was doing and why she was doing it. You know, in some ways, I think, you know, you, you can't reproduce those moments. It, it's, you know, so I try to do some little historical sketching in the book so you can understand, you know, why this was quite novel. Uh, the Eichmann experience was opening up a, a view of suffering and a way to think about it that was, the, for which there were no sort of protocols and conventions. But when she injected irony into that discussion, people recoiled. Like, well, okay, that's not the way to do it. You, you really should be doing it. So all, this un- all these unstated assumptions suddenly got clarified with Eichmann. But we, had Eichmann been, I don't know, Raoul Hilberg, you know, who wrote the first sort of big history of the, of the Holocaust, I'm not sure it would have been quite as... We actually have a piece right now by another former guest of the radio show, um, George Prochnik, uh, on the Eller Review of Books site about this very subject um, and how Gershom Sholem very much responded in that way to Anna Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem and was, you know, was horrified at her lack of what he thought was lack of empathy and her ability to laugh at the trial because of how bad Eichmann was in speaking German. And so it's interesting to also think and, and hear the flip side of that, which is, well, would Sholem have had a similar response to a man sitting there and writing a similar piece, right? Yeah. Counterfactuals that you can't actually know yeah. the, of um, the answer to, but my guess throughout the book is no. Um, but, you know, 
we don't know. It's just that I think the historical record more broadly tells you probably not, because right. you'd have to find people being outraged by some man's heartlessness and which we're not yeah. yeah we're not predisposed <laughs> to do that yeah well or just it just look at the historical record where has it happened when has it happened yeah and that's what seemed conspicuous to me is that they were always getting themselves into these controversies because of what looked like a failure of heart mm-hmm. and well, a failure of feeling and you know McCarthy's sex farces or Didion stripping bare of some political figure or another that, um, you know, even someone like Joan Baez at the height of her popularity. So you, the question isn't merely speculative, it's historical. Right. Well, um, so it kind of in closing, I wanted to see, um, Debbie, if you could respond a little bit to like, how did writing about and through these women change you in any way? I should also say, by the way, that Deborah was my master's thesis advisor and my her fellow advisee, who's still my very good friend, Alex Wormer Colon. Both of us thought of you as an incredibly tough woman. Debbie, you can't oh. see it right now because we're in Radio Land, but it's like and I don't know if you still dress this way, but she used to wear these great leather jackets and she would have she always had a diet coke. Do you, <laughs> do you still do you still <laughs> do you still drink diet coke? Okay. Yeah. So Debbie would sit behind her desk and she was always great. She was the best kind of advisor, but she was always tough and like gave you the criticism that you needed when you need it. And when you got like an okay or a good job from her, you knew it was like the, you know, my dream compliment. Exactly. Um, So I'm hilarious because that's what I said to my advisor recently when I was back (laughs) giving a talk at CUNY. I was like, once Nancy told me, wrote on the top of my you know, 11th draft of my dissertation proposal, you're improving. And I was like, yes, you're improving. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I always thought I was nicer than Nancy, but evidently not. No, but there's a, well, there's a difference between being nice and being t- like you had a tough aesthetic. Like you were, you're serious and like you, you know, you, you came to really like play. So I'm wondering if like this, because I've always thought of you obviously as a tough person and a tough woman. Did this book change you in any way? Like, did you, you know, did you interrogate your own toughness in a different way? Um, that's an interesting question because, you know, I don't necessarily think of myself like that. Although I suppose that, I mean, I, this doesn't, this is not a, a view of me that I find shocking. It's just not something I actually think about very much. I think what, what maybe, no, I shouldn't say it surprised me, but it was, you know, the costs of this are, costs of toughness are are also, I think, manifest in the chapter. I mean, it's not something that you come out of without some loss. Yeah. And it's kind of being able to, you know, you have to kind of choose your losses, right? You're, you're like, you're going to lose, but what are you going to lose? And are you willing to lose it, you know, versus what you've, what you potentially gain? So I think I, I think I came out with a more measured relationship to that. I think some of it is, temperamental and some of it is it is methodological these are things i think work so i actually do them because i think they work that you get you know good work out of students if you're you demand what you think their best is right and absolutely um or demand them to be their best because they can they're strong enough to handle it and they and most people like to have done their best because it's very rewarding um but that's a little different than than i think what what they're doing, I'm, but it's, you know, it's of a piece. Um, 
yeah, what do I, I, you know, I think in some practical ways, I was really trying to write in a different way. And I'm not sure I have totally achieved what I was aiming for. But you know, I was trying to write in such a way that wasn't only an inviting book for specialists in a particular period or a particular genre. And in some ways, you have to work that way when you're working with people who are so different, like who have different bodies of scholarship attached to them. But that was also, in a way, the same thing. It's like trying to be more welcoming in prose, you know, is, is it's not, you know, you, there's lots of ways of being welcoming. That doesn't mean you have to be sentimental. Right. Yes. So that's what you talk, I mean, that, that seemed to me something really smart that you pointed out with Didion. I have to say, as someone who was so, is a lyrical, very lyrical to read, but might not content-wise be super emotive. Right, yeah, she's a, she's a very interesting case because, of course, her reputation is being, you know, it's a personal writer, and it's not really, if you look at it, it's very carefully measured and controlled. Right. Um, and the prose is, too. Yeah, and that's oh, part of it. Much. You know, dazzle. It's, you exactly. know, it's the beat is never, never off. Not a single syllable is ever off the beat. You know, and, so that rhythm is, is amazing. Yeah. Deborah, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was amazing to read your book, Tough Enough, and given us a lot to think about. So thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Deborah Nelson, whose new book is Tough Enough. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are... Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 